Hi, welcome to the On Your Marks book review podcast with me, Jonathan Marks. Today I'll be sharing with you my review of the absolutely fascinating book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. This book was published in 2019 and is written by a veteran and multi-Pulitzer Prize winning Wall Street Journal writer, John Carreyrou. The book won the F.T. McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award in 2018. This is my second reading of the book. I read it in 2019 when it first came out, and with the, spoiler alert coming, ending of the trial of Elizabeth Holmes in late 2021, I thought I would reread the book, which I so thoroughly enjoyed the first time. The second time around was in many ways better. I got to really dive into the research and the level of detail of Carrie Rue's book, which is absolutely astounding. I'm so grateful that the story ended up in the hands of such a great writer and was not given short shrift with some hack looking to quickly capitalize on the story. Given the level of secrecy that surrounds the company and the extent to which it sought to silence whistleblowers and those who had resigned or been fired, it's a true feat of journalistic entrepreneurialism that resulted in the book having such a wealth of first-rate sources. Okay, this is starting to sound a little like a Carrie bromance, so I'll stop here and focus on the book itself. It's October 2014, and the team at Theranos is celebrating Halloween, a company tradition in which no expense was spared. Elizabeth Holmes, dressed as Queen Elizabeth, was reveling in the recent company valuation of 10 billion US dollars making her the youngest female billionaire in U.S. startup history. What Holmes had no way of realizing was that, a mere 12 months later, all the fame, wealth and prestige would come crashing down, leaving her and her romantic partner and the company president and COO, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, facing a number of federal indictments for fraud. Holmes, a 19-year-old Stanford dropout, decided to take on the multi-billion dollar blood testing and diagnosis industry, largely controlled by four behemoths, Siemens, Abbott Labs, LabCorp and Quest. Amid much fanfare, she announced that the days of drawing blood from a vein were over, and that through her patented technology, a few drops of blood, taken from a finger prick and captured in a nanotainer, a small glass vial, would be sufficient to run a raft of tests on a device not much larger than a desktop printer. When questioned as to how this could be done, given the complexity of blood test diagnostics and the need for absolute accuracy given the many life and death decisions that are made from these tests, she replied, and I quote, A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample, which is translated into a result, which is then reviewed by a certified laboratory personnel. End quote. A statement that the New Yorker called comically vague. Theranos, the name is derived from a mashup of the words therapy and diagnosis, raised capital from a number of Silicon Valley investment icons, including veteran VC Tim Draper, a family friend, not of mine, of Holmes, as well as Larry Ellison, founder of Oracle, Rupert Murdoch, and Alice Walton of Walmart fame, reputed to be the wealthiest woman in the world. She stocked her board of directors with a veritable who's who of elder statesmen and connected people, 
including two former Secretaries of State, George Schultz and Henry Kissinger, Avi Trevanian, a tech guru who had worked closely with Steve Jobs at Apple and Next, as well as a former Secretary of Defense, General James Mad Dog Mattis, no doubt a very mad dog after he was enveloped in the saga that, that followed the exposure by Carriru. With cash, by the end almost $900 million, and a board that sounded like the roster from the World Economic Forum, she set out to conquer the world. Or at least a small but very lucrative part of it. The mission was clear, if not very simple. How could people, regular people like you and I, take better control over their health through accurate testing and diagnosis in a way that was cheap and largely painless? Holmes, suffering from a lifelong fear of needles, proposed a system that drew a few drops of blood from a finger prick, which was then loaded in a cartridge to test the blood in the Theranos Minilab device. All fine so far, except of course the device simply didn't work. The basic laws of fluid dynamics and the complexity of running multiple tests in parallel from a few drops of blood was essentially science fiction. Holmes, now joined by her romantic partner Sunny Balwani, a man 20 years her senior, embarked on what can only be understood as a fraud of monumental proportion. While the intention was honourable, the means less so. During demonstrations of the mini-lab, visitors to the San Jose startup, which included the now US President Joe Biden, were invited to submit to blood tests using the mini-lab. Blood was drawn via a finger prick and inserted into the device for testing. The visitor was then taken on a tour of the facility. While this went on, a lab technician would remove the blood sample, test it using standard lab testing equipment, often on machines made by Siemens, and then return the results as if it had been prepared by the mini-lab. This deception was widely used at the company and managed to help secure both Walgreens and Safeway, two very well-known US retailers who agreed to not only run the Theranos mini-lab from their various locations, but to loan money to the company to further develop the technology. As senior staff joined this rising star of a company, most found themselves unable to live with this duality and resigned or were fired. This led to a culture of fear and intimidation, presided over by Sunny Bulwani, who seemed to practice a style of management that I could only really describe as Stalinesque. By the closing days of the company's life, most of its financial resources were being spent on lawyers who pursued not only former employees who had spoken to the media, but the media itself. It was unclear from the book narrative who was enthralled with whom. Was Sunny under Elizabeth's spell or the other way around? As the company came crashing down, Holmes turned on Sunny, blaming him for the problems at the business, and subsequently fired him. Holmes testified at her trial that Bulwani was exceptionally controlling. The two had met when she was just 19 and he 37. Carrie Rue doesn't paint a particularly flattering picture of Sunny, describing him as, and I quote, a force of nature, but not in a good way. Holmes, despite what was presented at her trial, was by no means a warm glass of milk herself. Obviously driven, very definitely intelligent, and charming in the extreme, she curated a persona in order to compete in the fast-paced startup world of Silicon Valley. She had an almost unnaturally deep voice, something that was absolutely cultivated based on early interviews and occasional lapses on camera. 
She was fascinated with and modelled herself on Steve Jobs, a similarity that was aided and abetted by those around her, as well as the media. For example, she took to dressing in black turtleneck sweaters, much like Steve, and appointed Chiat Day, the Theranos ad agency. This was the same agency responsible for the many iconic Apple adverts. It was rumoured that Jobs would meet with the agency every Wednesday, a habit that Holmes took on as well in order to emulate her hero. Holmes had what I can only describe euphemistically as a very healthy sense of self. Her and Sonny had a substantial security detail. She was Eagle 1, Sonny Eagle 2. And in a remodel of the Theranos offices, she had her office made to look like the Oval Office. Interestingly, when she was 9 or 10 years old, reports Carrie Rue, a relative asked her, What do you want to be when you grow up? Without skipping a beat, she replied, I want to be a billionaire. Wouldn't you rather be the president? The relative asked. No, she replied, the president will marry me because I'll have a billion dollars. It seems well that in the end she pursued and achieved both these goals, albeit with a look-alike Oval Office and no real ability to declare war. The cracks in the Theranos facade were largely plain to see, and Holmes's attempt to get the Minilab device deployed within the US Army almost spilled the beans. Like with her consumer-facing solution, the military solution seemed almost unbelievable. Minilab devices deployed onto the battlefield which could save lives without having to move wounded soldiers back to field hospitals. This caught the attention of General Mattis, then the head of US forces in Afghanistan, who was in total support of the initiative. The army, I guess like most bureaucracies, moves very slowly, and it took some time to arrange a demo and for the head of regulatory compliance, a Lieutenant Colonel David Schumacher, Schumacher was no ordinary soldier. He had a PhD in microbiology and had spent years doing medical research in the army and was an expert on the regulatory environment created by the US FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. While he too was concerned with healthcare and saving lives, he was aware that the Minilab had no published research associated with the device and no strict clinical lab test or trials or research protocol. All medical research in U.S. institutions, whether government or private, needs to be approved by an institutional review board, which has a special interest in medical research. Holmes knew this, but arrived at the meeting with a single-page protocol to share, which sneakily used the Minilab as a collecting device rather than a processing device. This changed the regulatory structure and was nowhere near what the marketing promise had been to consumers or for that matter what had been sold to large clients such as Walgreens and Safeway. Schumacher refused to give his approval, leading to Matter stepping in to clear the blockage at the behest of Holmes. Eventually a test was agreed upon which Theranos was unable to pass. This didn't prevent Holmes and Bulwani publicly stating that their device was, and I quote, installed in the back of Humvees all over Afghanistan. In the end, Schumacher was just grist for the mill, as investors and the board seemed to not want to hear anything but positive stories about the company. The book raises a number of interesting questions, certainly for startups in the US, but I think for entrepreneurs and the broader entrepreneurship and investment community as well. The startup hype culture of fake it till you make it is well entrenched in the culture of Silicon Valley. There's a long history of vaporware, essentially nothing more than a PowerPoint presentation that often never sees the light of day, 
let alone delivers on all the promises made to all investors or potential customers. What occurs is that the line between reality and enthusiastic exuberance is often blurred until the company and its promoters so completely believe that their tech will work, they become deaf to the more sane and grounded voices, often within their own team, who are raising real and legitimate concerns. Well, I guess it's right to be enthusiastic, where it becomes a little iffy is when the line between truth and lies is breached. There's been a spate of these stories recently, Fire Festival, The Tinder Swindler, and the story of Anna Delvey, all available on Netflix, by the way. It seems to be quite endemic in our society, and it's something I look forward to understanding in greater detail when I review Gabriella Bluestone's book Hype in the coming months. Coupled to this is the role that the media and investors play in perpetuating the hype. The media had an important role to play in elevating Holmes to the position she found herself in in the end. A number of flattering puff pieces were published in Fortune, Forbes, and even the Wall Street Journal. She was fated by a host of powerful people, including Bill and Hillary Clinton. Investors who were downright swindled out of their money based on false financial projections and a certain looseness with the truth as regards the sales pipeline and the mini-lab technical capabilities threw money at the company and encouraged others, some who didn't have it to lose, to do the same. Interestingly, many of the big-name investors have not sued or been named in the fraud case. Investing in the Valley is so reliant on relationships and the ability to access good deals, especially early on, that many have just written off their losses rather than be excluded next time around. In reading this book, I felt slightly vindicated as I read the story, as I often tell my students, the only person who can validate your business idea is a customer. Receiving investment or having the media hype you or your business is not validation. It's just an expression of their interest in you. Nothing more. There are also concerns regarding how this plays out for women entrepreneurs in the future. Holmes was right when she says, Every article I read about me starts with a young woman. I've never read an article about Mark Zuckerberg that starts with a young man. End quote. One could question whether the desire to have successful female startup founders, and billionaires I would hope, may result in the media, investors and others promoting women and their businesses at such a pace that they may well be set up for failure. There are many who suggest Holmes was or is a sociopath. I certainly don't have the ability to decide on this one. It would seem, though, that she started with a noble idea, and one that is in fact being advanced by a number of startups in the US and around the world. Maybe like Icarus she flew too close to the sun and her wings melted, or maybe it was all just bullshit. Who knows? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I highly recommend this book. It's a gripping read by an absolutely stellar journalist. For those in South Africa, the HBO documentary on the company is available on, on Showmax. Thank you all for your support. In seven weeks, I've grown the small community to just short of 700 people. I'm absolutely delighted, and I'm hoping you can share this as always with your community so I can reach my goal of 1,000 subscribers by the end of March. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week.